from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Welcome to Money Memories, the podcast designed to make money conversations less taboo, one money memory at a time. I'm your host, Alona, and each week I interview a different set of guests about their earliest or most impactful experiences with money and how it's affected their personal development. Let's jump in. On this episode, we're featuring Max Nova, the founder of Sylvia Terra, a startup that counts trees. Don't worry, I didn't know what that meant either. We're also going to talk about how Mr. Money Mustache helped Max structure his personal finances and the woes of being an early stage startup founder. Let's check it out. Welcome, Max, to Money Memories. Thank you for your time. How are you today? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So not many of you guys will know this, but Max and I actually went to high school together. So we go way, way back. Would you like to share your earliest or most impactful money memory? You know, when when I think back to the first time I remember actually thinking about money, I think my mom used to get these golden dollars the the Sacagawea dollars. And the deal was, you know, we had to do the, these chores around the house and, you know, there, there were a bunch of them. But the one I always remember is uh, the dishes. Uh, if you did the dishes, you got a Sacagawea dollar. And uh, yeah, that I I remember that very, very vividly. And yeah, I, I don't get those anymore uh, no. at, at my house. But uh, yeah, no, that, that's really wife. stuck with me. What did you do with your Sacagawea dollars? Did you collect them, spend them? What did you do? Yeah, I, I, I was a big saver. You know, we, we had these little boxes. You know, we had four little boxes that were in mom's desk. And, you know, we, we would put money in there. And like at a certain point, you would you would have like a three by five index card that was like a little bank account. We kept a sort of running tally of, of the money. And then, you know, if you wanted to get, you know, some Lego toy or something at the store, you know, mom would deduct that from your index card and you would have to, you know, you really watch the dollars and cents. And so, yeah, that, man, I haven't thought about that in a long time. So, yeah. So I think that's really interesting because it's like that, that index card system is like a, it's basically like a little checkbook for, for you and your siblings, like to help you balance it. Did you, did you think about it that way or was it just like a, did you just, is that how you kept the tally or were you just not thinking about it? I I, I was just thinking about the Legos. I was just (laughs) counting down the weeks, you know, until, until I'd have enough to, you know, those Legos are expensive. They're still expensive. So I know. My cousin, uh, my family is Russian. I'm half Russian. And my cousin is eight years younger than me. So growing up, he was always like, I want Legos. I want Legos. And we got to the point where we were like, listen, we live in America, but we're not like million. We can't afford you a Lego set every year. (laughs) So that's how I learned that Legos are actually really expensive. So going back to that example, would you say that you're organized with your personal finances? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, to, to this day, like, you know, I mean, I've got everything on Mint, like we have monthly budgets going on, you know, I've like, we, we actually haven't done some of the like super extreme, like retirement planning stuff yet, just because my wife's in grad school. And so would you say that that sense of organization is something that came naturally to you? Or is it something that you had to 
develop and hone over the years? Well, you know, I, I always remember, you know, we had this big kitchen table, you know, growing up, family of six, and uh, my dad ran his own own medical practice. And, you know, about once a year, my mom would have, you know, all these file boxes out and she'd sit down at that kitchen table and she'd go through like literally line by line the expenditures at my dad's practice and basically do a full audit of the practice wow. every year. You know, she was always finding stuff and like, yeah, I just, yeah, there was always a week where mom was always a little grumpy, uh, you know, but she was going through line by line on that whole thing. And, you know, I, I haven't thought about that in years, but so, you know, she was, you know, yeah, my mom's a big systems person for sure. Yeah. So, so it's, off. it seems like a lot of these kind of organ, like methodical organizational behaviors were modeled uh, for you at an early age, just from, from your parents. Is that correct? Well, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I, so. I mean- I love that quote. I actually put a sticky of that up by my dad's office. Um, (laughs) No, I totally agree. It seems to me that you had a pretty strong foundation just in what you witnessed growing up and how you interacted with money. You and I had talked prior to this and you mentioned you're a big fan of the Mr. Money Mustache um, series. Can you connect the dots in that evolution from young, you know, fastidious Max to adult, super organized Money Mustache Max? Yeah, well, the to, to me, the really attractive thing about money mustache, I mean, the, the money is important, but, you know, it, it's done not in the service of the money itself, but rather in, you know, trying to live uh, a life where you're you're free, you can sort of spend your time doing what you want, whether or not it's economically compensated. You know, and this is one of the things that I think is actually fairly radical about, about money mustache is this idea that, you know, lots of things that we, we value as people are not valued economically, you know, like raising your kids or, you know, investigative journalism or being an environmental steward. There's all these things that we know are important, but we don't attach money value to. And so a lot of people end up having their time skewed towards these economic things rather than some of these other things, uh, because there is sort of a a market failure. And so anyway, like, I, I just, I like the idea where money mustache says, you know, like figure out what it is in your life that you actually care about that actually makes you happy and, and spend money on those things. And, you know, avoid the trap of spending lots of money on things that don't bring you long-term happiness. What are some of the examples of those things that you were spending on that wasn't contributing to your long-term happiness? Well, so, so the, the way to figure this out and the exercise that he has that I really like is he says, okay, like think about things in your life that make you happy and, and then choose the, the top 10. And then what you do is you, you know, so for me, those are things like eating lots of good food, you know, having a, a house uh, in the mountains uh, reading lots of books, being part of an intellectual community. You know, there, there's all these things. And then what the trick is you list them from cheapest to most expensive. And then you just look at your top five cheapest. And so for me, that's reading a lot of books, intellectual community, building physical things, spending time with friends and family and uh, working hard on something that matters. And, and you look at this and you say, wow, I could spend my whole life just doing those things. And it, and it would cost very, very little money. Now that the tough part is those bottom five, you know, the sailboat, the house in the mountains, the eating the good food all the time, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you have to say goodbye to those. Well, you, well, you don't actually, but the, the nice thing about money mustache is it gives you a, a actual quantitative framework for thinking at the margin, which like economically you want to do, but you say like, okay, well, you know, just my top five, I could retire at age 30, but if I want that sailboat, Lifetime ownership cost is going to be 300 grand. And if I can save five or, you know, if I can save 50 grand a year, then that's six more years I'd have to work, you know, but now you're thinking at the margin and, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth retiring six years later to have that sailboat, or maybe it's not, but at least you have a framework for thinking about it. 
Yeah, that that's really fascinating. I didn't know that the, that that was the first step was kind of listing like your top ten things that yeah, people well, that, that, yeah, that that's buried somewhere in like the middle of his you know like thousand blog posts or something. <laughs> so that's not actually like what he starts with, but that, yeah. that to me was like one of the most radical like framework things that he says because it you know like you're you're an, an economics person, right? You know, it's thinking at the margin is the key to good decision making, and a lot of people don't really do that exercise, especially as it concerns early retirement. When when you talk about thinking at the margin, can you explain what that means to the non-economically savvy among us? When you think about thinking at the margin, what does that what does that mean for you and your household? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's you have to avoid thinking about all your sunk costs in the past, and you have to say like, okay, well, like right now, like for this one decision, like if I look at the the future outcomes, what is the delta between doing this and not doing this right now? Yeah. And that, that's, that's really it. I love that. I love, I love that you brought in sunk cost. That's why I see, that's why I pushed you to answer it. I love that you brought in the sunk cost. Cause I feel that that is, I fight that battle with my own parents. Everything's a sunk cost. It just keeps dragging them down. Right. It doesn't even have to be financial. It could just be like, remember that one time we went and talked to that person and they talked and like, I still want my time back. And you're like, it's over. Right. The sunk cost. <laughs> Please. Right. Um, but I think it's such an important concept to really learn, understand, master, embrace, love, et cetera. You're married, you have a partner. Was she on board with your philosophy as well? Was she like, yeah, this is great? Or like, can, can you talk about the, the mutual decision making that's involved in, you know, managing the finances for a household? Well, there is an early money mustache post that says, uh, help, Mr. Money Mustache is destroying my marriage. You know, to which he responds, <laughs> like, fear not, good readers. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but the sad, the, the plot twist here is actually like, you know, you know, he's been running this blog for a decade now or something, but last year he actually got uh divorced, which was, which was oh. too bad. So it's a uh, okay. sort of a, a big, uh, question mark in, uh, the, the mustache community. Uh, you know, I, I, I looked at that, you know, my, my wife has a very similar view towards a lot of the money yeah. stuff that I do, you know, and part of that's part of her upbringing. You know, I mean, she grew up in in Sweden, both of her parents were refugees from communism in Europe, you know, dad from, from Poland, mom from the Czech Republic. And, you know, they always were very, very frugal, very conscious of, of money, very careful about how they did their spending and um, very methodical about all that. And so we, we actually, you know, in spite of having, you know, fairly different backgrounds and upraisings, we actually like have fairly good agreement on, on money. I mean, we're, we're both pretty, pretty tight <laughs> when it comes to spending, spending money. Yeah, it seems like you guys share similar similar values when it comes to that. So it's I think that always helps um, because when people are coming from completely different directions, it, it's almost like a religion. <laughs> it's like you can't you can't. It's not an easy conversion process, right? right. It's, it makes it a lot easier when you share those core tenets. And talking about like partnership and sharing similar philosophies, you are also the co-founder of a very wonderful, successful startup called Sylvia Terra. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you, in the same way that it's important to have like a philosophically aligned partner in your monetary decisions, how do you go about finding that same kind of relationship when you decide to start a company? Yeah, well, you're, you know, I, I sort of joked to Nicole, I said, you know, this is marriage number two for me. You know, <laughs> I was already married to Zach, my business partner, when we did Sylvia Terra. Because, I mean, it is, I mean, like you're spending a ton of time with that person. You're making financial decisions with that person. You're working right. hard together. You're trying to go in the same direction. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, yeah, start, starting a business was sort of a good practice run for, for real marriage. <laughs> so, right. But, yeah, I mean, and, and Zach and I, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's been, we're 10 years in now at, wow. at Sylvia Terra. So it's it's been a very long and, and productive partnership. And, uh, you know, Zach and I certainly don't agree on on everything, but we we agree on on the big things. And, and the reality is, is like, I end up handling most of the financial stuff today at Sylvia Terra. And Zach's really more of the sort of big vision guy. Got and so, you know, the, they're sort of, a, you know, like we, we were talking talking earlier about the division of responsibilities, you know, that's, right. that's sort of how it works there. You know, he trusts me to sort of do the right thing on the financial side, and I trust him to lead us in the right direction, and it all works out. That's very interesting. See, I didn't know you had that you wore the finance, like the kind of financial hat in the in your business relationship as well. I'd like to explore that, but before I do, can you just remind us what does Sylvia Terra do? Sure. We, we count trees from space is, is the simplest version. Counting trees. We, yeah. Yeah. But we, we use satellite imagery to, to look at every acre of forest in the United States and say, what are the sizes and species of trees uh, that are there? Which then, you know, forest managers use to value and manage their forest to say, you know, where do I cut? Where do I plant? Where do I fertilize? Where do I build roads? How much carbon is in these trees? What's the wildfire risk? You know, all, all these things that we care about. It's amazing. Incredible. And you found, so you started working on this when you were still in college at Yale, correct? Yep. Yep. And so, so Zach, your business partner, uh, was he at Yale as well? Yep. Yeah. It is important to say business partner. He, uh, my mom accidentally <laughs> called his phone once and, and he picked up and she thought it was me. And he's like, Oh yeah, this is Zach. I'm Max's partner. Just dead silence. <laughs> business partner. <laughs> oh, Zach. <laughs> You hadn't, you, you were like, there's something I need to tell you, mom. Yeah, exactly. Too soon. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but so when, when we started, you know, Zach, Zach really is the, the visionary in the business. You know, I, I really sort of view myself as, as more of the operator. You know, he, he's the one with the forestry background. He was doing his master's at the Yale School of Forestry. I was doing my undergrad in computer science. And, you know, he, he had actually developed the core technology behind the company. Uh, wow. and then, I met him. He was going to publish his technology as part of his master's thesis. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think, you know, maybe we can do a business about this. And I said, like, listen, I don't know anything about forestry. I'm, you know, a reasonably smart guy. I'll work 18 hours a day, do whatever it takes to make this thing get off the ground. And yeah, it's been been 10 years. Wow. So what were some of the challenges of getting that technology like out of the university environment? Yeah. I mean, the, the big one is the the IP, uh, mm-hmm. the intellectual property negotiation process. You know, even though he had invented the technology and, you know, he, he, I guess he had used the university Wi-Fi or something, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it just, it, right. it was a very long process, especially at the beginning when you would rather be focused on uh, selling to customers. Yeah. Technology. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that you felt so comfortable stepping into that business development, business plan role, you know, when you really like, had you ever started a company before? Did you have any? Yeah, actually in high school. Yeah, we we had done uh, one with, uh, yeah, our computer science teacher. We we had built some software for for managing uh, school activities. Yeah, and I mean, it was not a great business. You know, I didn't really go anywhere, but I I sort of had gotten the bug in high school. and, And my theory for college was really, you know, once I decided I was going to be a doctor, like dad, you know, sort of adrift trying to figure out what I was going to do. I said, well, you know, if I start a business, I better start one now, you know, basically freshman year, because then I'm going to have three years of a, a roof over my head and food on the table. And, uh, you know, I can sort of skate by in classes. And uh, hopefully by the time I graduate, I'll have something that's making enough money that yeah. I can just do that. And that's, that's how it turned out. How did you approach that? Well, you know, so, so I, I washed out of pre-med. So then it was like, okay, well, what do I do summer after freshman year? And uh, I heard the School of Forestry three really good parties. The GIF <laughs> is, thank God I'm a forester every Friday. Oh, my, go- oh yeah. my goodness. That was We're a good time. But, 
Yeah. But so, you know, I, I just by chance ended up in this lab that Zach, my co-founder was in, you know, and we started talking about what he was doing and, and, you know, I thought it sounded uh, great, you know, and then we won Yale's business plan competition that next year, uh, my sophomore year. And then that summer we literally piled into his tiny little Ford Ranger pickup truck and started driving South. And, you know, we were calling anybody that owned more than a hundred thousand acres of timber and setting up meetings and just hustling. Wow. And yeah, that's that's sort of how it all started. Over over these ten years of doing the business, I would say the amount of time that I've really used sort of my full full on brain power is probably about three months. You know, most of doing a startup is just pain tolerance, you know, and just getting punched mm. in the face every day and just pushing forward. And yeah, that that I hadn't quite expected. You know, people always tell you it costs twice as much and takes twice as long, but I was like, Oh, those guys are a bunch of chumps. I'm Smarter than that, I'll figure it out. And yeah, just been getting punched in the face every day for the last 10 years. So, <laughs> well, punched in the face and also having a viable, like, proof of concept, right? Because you can get punched yeah. in the face and just have, like, like trash. <laughs> yeah. At what point in, during that process of you being in the van and pitching to, to different timber, is it, do you call it a timber farm? Timber? Well, you, you, you would call forest? them a forest manager. Sorry. Yeah. You would call it a forest, Alona. Yeah. Well, there, there's, <laughs> yeah, these big in, in institutional, like, timber investment management organizations and real estate investment trusts that get money from pension funds and insurance companies and university endowments. So at what point in that process did that kind of dichotomy between Zach as a visionary and you as kind of the more method, like the financial planner emerge? Well, I mean, that that was pretty clear from the beginning. I mean, Zach, Zach is like a a genius guy. And actually when we started, you know, I was 20, Zach was like 26. And so he seemed a lot older and wiser than I was at the time. Right. It was sort of funny. Like when when I turned 26, I was like, Zach, you didn't know anything back then. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But uh, yeah. He could drink. Legally. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That's true. The, you know, the Zach, Zach is a brilliant guy, but he's also very much kind of your, your classic artist style guy, where I was much more sort of your operator style guy. So it was pretty clear from the beginning, sort of who was, you know, what the division yeah. of responsibilities was going to be. I can see how it's a brilliant combination, but I could also see how there's opportunity for tension. And did you ever, did you ever go through that? I always remember we, we, we're, we're at this, this diner about to meet with, you know, some potential client or something. And we, we had been having some big, you know, debate in the, in the car. And I, I, I can't even remember what it was. I just remember the, you know, we're sitting there in that booth at that diner and uh, it was, it was like, okay, well, you know, if you think that way, like, you know, we can be business partners, but we just won't be friends. That's fine. <laughs> oh <my laughs> it's, uh, it was like, yeah, but it was, yeah, it's like when, yeah. when you're, when you're in it, you know, doing these, these uh, startup businesses, you know, it's like you're spending all day, every day, you know, with, with these other people, you know, and some of, some of the arguments aren't even about, you know, business stuff, it's just about other stuff. And it's, yeah, I mean, there is tension though you know, between different styles of people and stuff. And, and that's just part of part of running an organization, you know, like an organization where everybody thought exactly the same thing yeah. would not probably be a very functional organization. And so the key is just to, to have a productive, you know, conversation around those things. And, you know, and I think Zach, you know, you know while we certainly have had our, our differences over the years, we, you know, we, we both just really trust each other's visions and, and, you know, we both care deeply about the business. And so, yeah, I mean, it's uh it's a journey. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine. And you mentioned organization. So how many people are in your organization now? Up to 11. I, and in fact, I actually just hired a, a CFO. Or, I mean, I'm ultimately responsible for all that, but it's, uh, it is really nice to have somebody, you know, whose actual job is, you know, full-time just because, you know, I'm, I'm the COO at Sylvia Terrence. So how much of the Mr. Money Mustache philosophy bleeds into how you run an organization? Is there overlap between personal finance and running a business or are they very separated? 
Yeah, you know, I, haven't, I, I haven't even thought about it like that because they, they're just two very separate things for me. Yeah. You know, it's just like running a business. It's like when you have a 11 person headcount, right? Like that gets expensive no matter what you're doing, you know? And it's like, right. it's, it's just sort of a different universe. I view it as a very sort of different, uh, different scenario. And that's a big difference though, too, right? Is like in, in your personal finances, you can't 10 X your annual income. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like, you know, may, maybe like, you know, but there's a 50, 50 chance you end up in prison. Right. But the, uh, the, whereas in a business, like the whole point is to, to really grow that, that top line number there. And yeah, you know, you gotta, gotta spend money to make money in a way that like, doesn't really, you know, your, your personal consumption is, is that it's consumption. It's not investment in building stuff. And right. so. That's a great uh, the calculus really is different. Is there an element of kind of gut feel to it in those early days or are you, is it, can you control that with like Excel? No, I mean, like I, I, I've, you know, I've put together an Excel model or two in my day, but like the, the way, especially in the early stages that you make the decision is you try to make the decisions as simple as possible. But like when Zach and I were making big decisions in the early days, it was almost always a binary thing. It's like, will this thing work or will it not work? You know, will we get this deal? Will we not get this deal? Like, what is the most important thing we need to be thinking about right now? And were you, were you bootstrapped early on or how yep. did, okay. And did, did you ever secure financing? Yep. Yep. So we, okay. we actually raised a little bit of money from some guys that were, were investors in a big timber fund. Yeah. It's sort of like angel investors just because they okay. got it. But, uh, you know, our, our approach was really sort of, you know, we're, we're both out in Silicon Valley now, but we're really not a particularly Silicon Valley company. Right. You know, we wanted to sort of prove out the technology, sort of grow organically, uh, you know, every step by step because we're a data company. You know, it, it all depends on trust and, and trust and speed are not always super compatible. And so being able to... Why do to, you say that? I, I think the process of building trust just takes time. You know, human beings and these, you know, the systems that they're in, uh, a lot of it is relationship building and, and starting small and, and building trust over time. And, and you just can't, you can't, you know, would you want to marry a person, you know, a week after meeting them? You know, I mean, there's some great reality TV made that way. Sheesh. I'm not sure there's great, great You're marriages questioning made my that faith way. in 90 day fiance right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so, some things just take time, you know, but I will say like, we're, we're actually now out uh, raising our seed round of money because okay. we're, we're, you know, we, we've established that foundation, but yeah, we, we wanted to have that in place really before we, yeah, before we started to raise a bunch of uh, other people's money. Right. And it kind of strikes me in this conversation, two things that you mentioned. One, that you haven't really secured, like you haven't gone out and secured a ton of outside investment. And two, you're not a quote unquote traditional Silicon Valley company. And I wonder if being away from that, those kind of external pressures allowed you to really like focus in on your your product. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there are th- certainly things we, we lost, you know, like we could have potentially grown faster, but I mean, it's also a higher risk path, right? right. And, and you know, one of the things about me actually, and, and one of the things I think that a lot of people mistake about entrepreneurs is they say, oh, you're like super, you know, risky, taking, you're taking yeah. tons of risk. I'm like the most boring person you've ever met. <laughs> like I, like I, I like to read a good book. I'll occasionally go on, you know, my bike ride. I've got a very boring personal life. I hate risk. I hate it. Uh, and everything I do as, as I run my business is to minimize the amount of risk we have. And, you know, that, that's a narrative that I think often gets lost and, you know, people sort of want you to take more risk. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, not historically been what we've done. It's, it's sort of not really my, my style. And yeah. I find that actually really refreshing. 
and I hope it encourages more people who might not see themselves as the quote unquote classical entrepreneur as being a potential founder someday. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think there is a bit of tension though with, you know, take a lot of risk, the sort of get rich quick style thing, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe this is my inner Kentucky shining through, but you know, I'd like to believe that, you know, smart people working hard over a long period of time, build something that's, that's worth building uh, and that is valuable. And and that's really sort of the approach we've, we've taken. And I mean, it's been, it's been hard, you know, like when you, when you bootstrap you, you're really, you know, scratching for nickels sometimes, especially in the yeah. early days. And uh, there's not a lot of shortcuts, but it forces you to build something that people will actually pay real dollars for. And right. and that's what we've done. So wh- if we want to find more information about your company, where can we go? Uh, SylviaTara.com is, is our website. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, okay. But SylviaTara.com is the main place. That, that's the one. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Make sure to visit our website at www.bearinthebull.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you like what you heard, please leave a rating on iTunes. Feel free to tell your friends about the show and connect with us on social media. See you soon. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.